Welcome to Tom SciCast. I'm your host, Tom Kennedy. In this podcast, I want to talk about the greatest evolutionary innovations of all time. Let's think about it. What were the greatest leap forwards, the greatest evolutionary innovations that had the biggest effect on the evolution of life on this planet? Now, I'm not going to go into the origins of life itself, but once life got started, what were those really groundbreaking, earth-shattering evolutionary innovations that paved the way for our world today? Our world is teeming with life. There are millions of species, and in fact, there are so many different forms of life on this planet, we don't even really know how many are out there. I mean, we've described several million species of plants and animals, but there could be more, especially single-celled prokaryotes, fungus, things that are hard to find, and small insects. Oh gosh, insects are everywhere. But wherever we look on this planet, we find life. And I'm talking about, you can go to Antarctica, one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. Go find a frozen rock, and guess what? There's life in it. We've discovered animals living almost two miles under Antarctic ice and lakes. I mean, these are lakes underneath the ice, of course. And not just microbial life, but animal life as well. Or you can also dive down to the deepest parts of the ocean. We're talking almost 36 thousand feet deep. I think it's like 35,800 and some change. That is a challenger deep in the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the oceans. And guess what we find down there? Life. And not just microbial life, we find animal life. And in fact, the most common habitat on the planet is in perpetual darkness in the depths of the ocean and is teeming with life. Life is everywhere. You can not only can you go down to the bottom of the ocean, but you can start to drill down into the substrate of the ocean. You can go hundreds of feet deep and guess what you find? Bacteria. And in fact, if you go almost anywhere in the world and dig a few hundred feet down, you will still find bacteria living in some of the most extreme and inhospitable places in the world. But let's move out of these extreme environments. When you go to the tropics, a square mile might have tens of thousands of species. Diversity is on top of diversity in the tropics. I mean, it's just full of life, right? It's just everywhere. So our world is teeming with life. And in fact, when you pull away from our planet, it's a pale blue dot dominated by our oceans and our blue skies. But everywhere, every corner of this planet, is teeming with life. So how did we get there, right? How did we get to a planet where there is basically life everywhere? At one time, there was no life on this planet. So what were some of the most important evolutionary innovations that have occurred during the long history of life on this planet? 
I mean, which ones really changed the world and paved the way for the world we see today? So of course, I love going back in time and we have to go way back in time. I've done this before in a previous podcast, but for me, one of the best ways to understand deep time is to think about going on a road trip. And our road trip is, if you've got one millimeter, imagine that that equals one year in time. So I'm in my mid forties, let's say I'm 46. So if I were to go 46 years back in time, I would have to go 46 millimeters or just under two inches, not very far. If I wanted to go a million years back in time, I would have to go about one kilometer or about 0.6 miles. Well, let's say I want to go back in time, almost the origins of life and witness the first major evolutionary innovation. I would have to go back in time almost 3.8 billion years. That is 3,800 kilometers. I mean, I could drive from New Mexico to Florida going that far. That's a long ways at one millimeter equals a year. And that should provide some insight into just how old this planet is. Based on our best evidence, we know that life pretty much began about 3.8 billion years ago. But if you're like me, I'm a bit of a biological determinist. I think that life actually began earlier. We just don't have good evidence for it because, well, there's just not a lot of evidence from that far back in time. The very first major evolutionary innovation had to occur almost at the dawn of life. What do you think it might be? What is the very first one? I'm not talking about abiogenesis here. I'm talking about first major evolutionary innovation. Yeah, there's lots of them, but I'm gonna start with DNA replication. Wow, DNA replication. Think about this, right? The very first life gets started through abiogenesis. And I'll cover how we think the life got started by abiogenesis in another podcast. But let's say life has gotten started. DNA replication is incredibly important because without DNA replication, life would not persist. It would pop up as some metabolically active rock. And whenever that, whatever geological feature that housed that life disappeared, it would take that life with it. Remember, DNA houses all of our genetic information. And that genetic information is really important because it carries out the activity of the cells. If you think about life as an island of low entropy and a sea of chaos, well, the way that life creates order is by extracting energy from the environment and processing that energy to create order. And it has to do that through a series of metabolic reactions. And the information to carry out and direct those metabolic reactions is stored in our DNA. So once we can store all the information to carry out the activities of a cell and we can replicate it, then life can be continuous. So DNA replication, this was a crucial step because it ensured the continuity of life. There are some consequences to DNA replication. 
One of them is you represent the end result of an unbroken lineage going back 3.8 billion years all the way to the very first life on this planet. Think about that. You're an unbroken lineage. You're the end result. That means your great, 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 insert about several billion grandparent was a prokaryotic cell swimming in some ancient ocean. The other consequence of DNA replication. You ever copied something down? You ever not copied it exactly right? Well, every time you copy DNA, there are errors. And we call those errors mutation. Mutation creates variation. You know where I'm going with this. Because we replicate DNA, there's a little bit of error every single generation that creates variation of population. And this process called natural selection can act on these populations with variation and that causes evolution. So life evolves because we have DNA replication. So basically, we wouldn't have much life today if it weren't for DNA replication. I mean, you might have a few metabolically active rocks still hanging around, but that's about it. The next major evolutionary innovation was a true game changer. And it really altered the course of evolution of life on this planet. And not only did it affect life, it also affected the atmosphere and everything around it as well. Let me paint a picture of early life on this planet. You see, when life got started, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. And life probably got started as an extension of geological processes from these thermal vents. And what they were doing was making organic molecules by fixing carbon dioxide by reacting it with hydrogen gas. And that was the source of a lot of their energy. So as you can imagine, the very first organisms on this planet were both autotrophs living off of energy from thermal vents and heterotrophs living off of other organic molecules that were created naturally or from these other cells. So as you can imagine, the very first ecosystems on this planet weren't very complex. There just wasn't a lot of energy available. There wasn't a lot of nutrients and building blocks in terms of like carbon. And there wasn't a lot of complexity either. But that was about to change. About three billion years ago, cyanobacterium evolved the ability to do oxygenic photosynthesis. There were other forms and still are other forms of photosynthesis that came along before oxygenic photosynthesis. But the difference is they didn't use water and they didn't release oxygen into the atmosphere. Instead, they released sulfur compounds and they used hydrogen sulfide instead. But oxygenic photosynthesis was a real game changer. You see, water is not in much short supply on this planet. So what oxygenic photosynthesis does is it takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere water, which is abundant, and the energy in sunlight, and it takes that carbon and fixes it into an organic molecule. And this is huge, and it's huge for several reasons. First, by fixing carbon dioxide into organic molecules, photosynthesis made a lot more carbon available to life, a lot more organic molecules. Second, because you're using the energy in sunlight to fix carbon into organic molecules like sugar, you're also making more energy available to ecosystems. 
And when ecosystems have more energy and more building blocks to work with, they can become more complex. So that's really important. Now you're also going, you know what? Uh, photosynthesis, it also releases oxygen into the atmosphere. Now for you and I, and most animals, we need oxygen and it's free oxygen, it's O2 or molecular oxygen. So we're biased. We think that oxygen is something we have to have. We have to breathe and that all life breathes. Well, the very first organisms that lived on this planet evolved in an atmosphere completely devoid of oxygen. We would call it anoxic. Now oxygen, remember, is really reactive. It likes to oxidize things and it oxidizes membranes, proteins, and DNA. So what this means is that oxygen initially was damaging to life. Now, before I go into how oxygen energized to life, next evolution innovation, there's one other thing that I wanna talk about with oxygen, and that is how it changed our atmosphere. Now, before photosynthesis came along, our atmosphere was methane, ammonia, water vapor, lots of carbon dioxide, and of course, nitrogen gas. So our atmosphere would have looked kind of hazy. And we also didn't have an ozone layer. By pumping out lots of oxygen to the atmosphere, it removed methane and ammonia, along with any other organic molecules or things that would easily have reacted with oxygen. And methane is a big greenhouse gas, right? So as oxygen removed the methane, it may have cooled the earth off a little bit, potentially sending the earth into a deep freeze. And we call these time periods snowball earths because it's likely that glaciers and ice went all the way down to the equator. And we think this may have actually happened several times. And, you know, we're not really sure. This, this is a little controversial here. We're still trying to figure out what was going on. But there is one thing that we do know. By pumping oxygen into the atmosphere, it created an ozone layer. Now, oxygen, we, we call oxygen as O2, molecular oxygen, but high up in the atmosphere, it interacts with ultraviolet light and forms O3. This is ozone. Now you do not want to breathe in ozone. It is really reactive and will damage you big time. That's why it's a pollutant. But high up in the atmosphere, ozone filters out ultraviolet light. That is important because ultraviolet light is bad for life. It's got enough energy that it can really damage anything living on the surface of the planet. So without our ozone layer, we basically wouldn't have any life living out of water, right? Everything would have to live in water and that only lasts for a time. You see, ultraviolet light can actually split water and it'll split it into hydrogen gas and oxygen. Now that's important. Oxygen would just go and react with any rock around it or anything else and oxidize it. But the earth is not really big enough to hold on to hydrogen gas. So what that means is over hundreds of millions of years, we would eventually lose our oceans, right? Because you would split water to hydrogen gas. The earth can't hang on to the hydrogen gas, so it would eventually slip off into space and the oxygen would just react with the rocks around it. And eventually the earth would end up looking like Mars, a dead red oxidized planet. So importantly here, we can thank photosynthesis, a life process, for stabilizing our atmosphere and protecting our oceans and making it possible for life to move on to land long after the first photosynthetic organisms evolved. 
So as you can see, the evolution of photosynthesis was really important because it added oxygen to the atmosphere, which energized life, formed an ozone layer, which helps protect life from ultraviolet light along with our oceans. And photosynthesis made a lot more energy and nutrients available to ecosystems. I made this comment a few minutes ago. I said, oxygen energized life. But I also said, early on, oxygen was pretty bad for life, right? Because it's reactive. So life evolves. I mean, that's the whole thing about DNA replication. Life evolves because there's variation. There's mutations creating differences in a population. So sometime around 2.3 billion years ago, oxygen levels in the Earth's atmosphere were reaching one, two, three percent, maybe in as high as five percent. And this was enough to spark the evolution of cellular respiration. Now, when I say cellular respiration, I really mean aerobic respiration, which is the ability to use oxygen. So think about this. Cellular respiration was an evolutionary event that allowed cells to use oxygen. And what it does is it takes oxygen and reacts it with some electrons and protons and makes water. So we take this really reactive molecule and we're making water out of it. And as you know, water is important for life. But here's the importance. You see, oxygen loves electrons. Oxygen is the second most electronegative element in the universe. So why is this electron-loving property of oxygen so important for life? How does oxygen energize life? Well, it turns out that all life, as you know, needs energy. And the universal energy currency of life is ATP. So you have to have a way of making ATP. And there's a couple different ways you can make ATP. One is through glycolysis. Another one is through the Krebs cycle. These are making it chemically. But the vast majority of ATP on this planet is made by a process called chemiosmosis. I know, another big science word here. Chemiosmosis is a process where protons flow through something called ATP synthase. They literally push their way through this large molecular complex, and as they flow through it, like water flowing through a dam, the cells harness that kinetic energy of those protons to make ATP. Now, to get protons on one side of a cell, much like water behind a dam, cells rely on what's called an electron transport chain. In electron transport chains, what they're doing is they're using the energy in the electrons, think electrons, electricity, and they use the energy of electrons to pump protons across their membrane. And what that does is that stores energy, but it's also out of equilibrium. So those protons, they want to be in equilibrium with the protons on the other side of the membrane. Well, they can't cross membranes, so they flow through the ATP synthase. And as they flow through the ATP synthase, like I said, that process is called chemiosmosis. And that is how you make ATP. And every cell on this planet makes ATP by chemiosmosis and using the energy in the electron transport chain. Now, electrons going through a transport chain. They're using the energy of the electrons. Oxygen likes electrons. So here's the kicker. Here's how this works. Oxygen is the final electron acceptor in cellular respiration. So what that means is as you have electrons coming through an electron transport chain, they're doing work. Well, they can get a lot more work done out of them because it can go lower and lower and lower in energy 
and there's oxygen, it can pick them up from really oxidized states. So what that means is by using oxygen as your electron acceptor, life could now get a lot more work done out of the electrons and make a lot more ATP. Let me say this again. Imagine you've got a molecule of glucose. Glucose has potential energy stored in it. That's your sugars, right? And cells will break down that glucose and they use that energy powered electron transport chain to make ATP through chemiosmosis. Well, if you use another type of electron acceptor that's not as good, you might only get four or five ATPs out of it. But by using oxygen, you can get way more. You can get upwards of like 28, 30 ATPs. So oxygen energize life by allowing cells to get way more energy out of a single molecule of glucose or whatever other organic molecule they're breaking down. And not only do they get a lot more energy out of these electrons, they also take those electrons, put them on the oxygen, or actually the oxygen grabs them off the electron transport chain. And then the oxygen with these unpaired electrons immediately react to those protons flowing through the ATP synthase and hydrogen plus oxygen yields water. Cellular respiration, I mean, it saved the day, right? It took oxygen, made water out of it, but in the process, life was able to extract a lot more energy out of organic molecules. It became much more efficient. So as you can see, cellular respiration was an incredibly big step and it paved the way for the next major evolutionary innovation. Shortly after the evolution of aerobic respiration, sometime around 2.32 billion years ago, we had another major evolutionary leap forward. And that was endosymbiosis and the origins of eukaryotic cells. So endosymbiosis happened when this aerobically respiring bacteria most likely bored its way into some archaean and was an intracellular parasite. And then over time, that relationship changed from a plus minus relationship to a plus plus. And what that means, plus plus is saying that both of these organisms benefited from the arrangement. Now, one misconception that I want to dispel very quickly here is there was not some proto-eukaryotic cell with some invaginations and early cellular organelles went along and engulfed an aerobically respiring bacteria. That did not happen. There was no phagocytosis. And there are several good reasons why I can say that with some authority. One is prokaryotes lack a complex cytoskeleton with motor proteins. You see, to do phagocytosis, you need microtubules and actin filaments with their motor proteins to like move a cellular membrane around another cell to engulf it. Well, we don't see any bacteria capable of doing that. Not only do you need the cytoskeletal elements to do that, you need copious amounts of energy. And the biggest reason why it wouldn't have happened that way is because prokaryotes are limited to being relatively small. The reason why they're limited to being small is because they make ATP across their membranes and they only have like the outer membrane. So as they get larger and larger and larger, as you well know, the volume increases by the third power, you know, length, width, height, and the surface area only increases by the two power, length and width. So as these cells get larger and larger and larger, 
their volume gets much larger, faster than their surface area. They use their surface area to make ATP. These cells run out of energy quickly. Like I said, endosymbiosis did not begin with one cell engulfing another, but most likely as one cell boring into another as an intracellular parasite. And like I said, that relationship changed over time to the plus-plus where they both benefited. And today, that intracellular parasite that was an aerobically respiring bacteria, today that's mitochondria. And they're completely dependent upon their host cells, but the mitochondria do still have circular DNA and they have ribosomes that are very bacterial-like. So we have really good evidence that mitochondria were once free-living bacteria. But endosymbiosis was really important because it led to the evolution of eukaryotic cells. Eukaryotic cells are these larger, more structurally complex cells. And the evolution of eukaryotic cells represented the largest restructuring of cells in two billion years of evolutionary history. And as you know, eukaryotes are really important because all multicellular organisms on this planet, including plants, animals, and fungus, are all made up of eukaryotic cells. And in fact, there are no multicellular prokaryotes. You might have colonies of prokaryotes that are multicellular, but there are no multicellular prokaryotes. So quickly, I just want to recap these evolutionary innovations. DNA replication allowed for the persistence of life and for life to evolve. Photosynthesis added nutrients and energy to our ecosystems. It added oxygen to the atmosphere, which energized life and also created the ozone layer to protect our oceans and protect life on the surface. Then we had cellular respiration. It evolved in response to higher levels of oxygen, but... It allowed life to become much more efficient at making ATP. So that's how oxygen energized life. But I want to be really clear about one point, and that is life does not get energy from oxygen. Ultimately, almost all life on this planet gets energy from sunlight. So it was DNA replication, photosynthesis, cellular respiration, and endosymbiosis. These four evolutionary events paved the way for multicellular life for the world we see today. Now, interestingly, most of those happened before 2 billion years ago. But it would take another 1.4 billion years for multicellular life to get started on this planet. And it really wasn't until about 550 million years ago that we see the rapid diversification of animal life. So what caused that delay? Well, that's the topic of my next podcast. Until then, this has been Tom Sycast. <laughs>